thank you so much for uh, your kindness and welcoming me. I am excited to welcome you back, as everyone else is. Uh, these are these are the greatest of days when school cranks up again, and I get to look into all of your <clears throat> wonderful faces. Um, I rejoice every time the Lord delivers a new crop of young people for us to have an influence in. What a tremendous blessing it is. And so without uh, overstating the case, I don't think I could overstate it. I just want you to know how grateful I am that you're here, how thankful to the Lord that you're back and that many of you are here for the first time. Many of you I've met in other parts of the country and it's such a joy. Some of you I saw in church yesterday. But from me, it's a privilege to have you here. God bless every one of you, and I think there's some absolutely incredible things ahead for all of us. Thanks for your prayers for me this summer. I had uh, quite an amazing summer, and I want to share just a couple of things about it. I went to Scotland, and uh, that's where the MacArthur's come from, the MacArthur clan, well known in Scotland. They were a bunch of murderers up in the north who came out of the hills and just slaughtered everybody. A uh, really nice group uh, of folks. Um, I went back to Scotland, <clears throat> back to my roots a little bit, and uh, I went up to St. Andrews, which is famous for golf. Golf was born in St. Andrews, and there's a golf course there called the Old Course. They've been playing golf there for 500 years on the same course. Now, Scottish people don't change much. So I said to one old guy, I said, has the course changed? Aye, he said, we moved a bunker. In 500 years, you moved one bunker? It took a vote of the whole club of the Royal and Ancient to move the one bunker. That course has been used for golf for 500 years. Put that in perspective. While some people were playing golf at St. Andrews, Philip Hamilton was being burned at the stake about 100 yards away. And not just Philip Hamilton, but three of his buddies your age, 19, 20, they were burned at the stake in the streets of St. Andrews. They were students at the third oldest university in the world, Oxford, Cambridge, St. Andrews. They were just young people like you. And while some people in St. Andrews were playing golf, a hundred yards away or so, they were being burned. Why? They were being burned for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were being burned because they were a part of the Protestant Reformation. Young men willing to take a stand for Jesus Christ and willing to die for the gospel that says salvation is by grace through faith alone. No works. The Roman Catholic Church burned them at the stake. And their initials are in the street where they were burned. There's a P.H. Philip Hamilton, just outside a pub in St. Andrews. I walked a little further up from the first tee, past the initials of Philip Hamilton, and I came to St. Salvator's Chapel. It's 
St. Salvator's Chapel is quite an amazing place. It's a chapel about as old as the university is. When I say a chapel, uh, you wouldn't think of it as a chapel. When you think of a chapel, you think of a maybe you think of this. This is chapel. You might think of a little building with a sort of an A-frame roof. This is a cathedral by our standards. Stained glass windows, what they call a nave and an apse, a long center and a cross piece always in the shape of a cross with the altar at the center. And uh, it's where John Knox preached. John Knox was the great preacher of the gospel who brought the Reformation to Scotland, who caused the break from the apostate Roman system and recaptured the gospel. And John Knox was a fiery preacher across Scotland, and he got himself in an awful lot of trouble during the time of the Reformation. And his pulpit is there in St. Salvator's Chapel, the very pulpit that John Knox used to preach when he was there in St. Andrews. And I, I climbed up into it. It's not a pulpit like this. It doesn't set somewhere. It, it's something you have to climb into. It's a big wooden thing with stairs and a big overhang. And, and I climbed into the pulpit and I thought it might fall apart because John Knox used to pound that thing when he preached, we're told. But they had kept it in good shape. And I stood in his pulpit and I thought about the time that John Knox had preached there and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ while some were dying outside, some students. And they took him out of that place and they hauled him across the little road to the castle, which still exists in ruins on the coast. And they threw him down in the bottom of the dungeon. And there he stayed in that terrible, dank and damp place until he was taken away and executed for his faith in Christ. Out of that Reformation, a great movement of God started there at St. Andrews. And a college was born as a part of St. Andrews University called St. Mary's College. St. Mary's College. For the training of ministers, for the training of teachers and preachers of the Word of God, for the training of those who were going to be the scholars and the theologians who would expound the true faith. So I walked from there over to St. Mary's, walked around St. Mary's with uh, Eric Alexander, the great Scottish preacher whose church I preached in while I was in Glasgow this time. And I said to Eric, I said, tell me about St. Mary's College. He said, it's a tragedy. He said, there's no one here who believes in the Bible. That is a tragedy. When you think that they step across the initials of Philip Hamilton and his three friends burned at the stake, they go into the chapel where John Knox preached and gave his life for the gospel, and this is the faculty of this theological school, and nobody believes in the Bible. How sad. Eric Alexander told me he was having a conversation with a man on the theological faculty who said he didn't believe in God. Amazing. He didn't believe in God. The Scottish Presbyterian Church has been affected by schools like that to such a degree that the Scottish Presbyterian denomination has gone rank liberal, denying basically everything. Eric Alexander, who pastors St. George's Tron Church in Glasgow, a Scottish Presbyterian Church, is one of us in every sense. 
And so they had the great meeting of the Presbyterian Council up by Edinburgh Castle, and they they fill this place that's hundreds of years old. Outside it has a huge statue of John Knox, by the way. Inside all these church leaders meet, and these guys in white wigs, you know, they still do it that way in funny robes and vestments, and there's a big box way up above everybody else where the queen or her representative sits because she presides even over the church. They had this big official meeting, and they called Eric Alexander to the front. And they brought him on the carpet because he was committed to the Word of God. They said to him, How can you stay in the Scottish Presbyterian Church when you believe what you believe? And he said, That's not the question. That's not the question. He said, The question is, How can you stay in the Scottish Presbyterian Church when you believe what you believe? That's the question. I stand on the great faith of the Reformation. You've abandoned it. Whoa. I'm, I mean, there were a few thousand people in there. And he, I said to him, I said, uh, well, what do you think their response will be? He said, I don't know what their response will be, but I feel a lot better <laughs> standing for his convictions. Boy, that's so sad. It's so sad when people turn their back on the Word of God. What a terrible, terrible tragedy that is. A whole nation being affected by that, drifting away from the Word of God. Later on in the summer, I went to New Zealand, and I, I was in New Zealand for about 18 days. I preached about 58 times, nonstop, hardly saw the light of day. People said, uh, isn't New Zealand beautiful? Well, I've been there before, so I know that, but on this trip I couldn't have told you. But in the middle of the time I was there, I got a, a very interesting invitation. There is a lot of concern in New Zealand. About 5% of the population goes to church. 95% could care less. They're kind of a rugged, uh, adventure-loving people. They love to ski and uh, bungee jump. That's where it was invented. Down in the Shotover River Gorge, they want to, you know, take their, their jet boats and come flying through the gorge. And, of course, I did that with them and spinning 360s amidst these rock sheer walls. And uh, they're a wild bunch. Climb the mountains. Go to the Milford Sound. I mean, they surf. They, they, it's just a really kind of a frontier existence. Drugs on the rise. Crime on the rise. Uh, uh, the opposite of a Scottish culture, which was very churched, was just sort of a freewheeling, have fun, live it up, 5% of the people go to church. The country is starting to spin downward into immorality and escalating crime and drugs and tragedy and the breakup of families. And so in the middle of the week, the folks called me and said, uh, you've been invited to speak to the parliament in Wellington, which is the capital city in uh, I said, well, that's amazing. Uh, how did it happen? Well, some of the members of parliament want you to come and speak. And so I was given the opportunity to go to what's called the Beehive. It's, it's the parliament building. It's the, uh, the building where the members of parliament meet every day to rule over the land of New Zealand. And they asked me to come and address the issue of what happens to a country that loses its moral bearings. What a tremendous opportunity. They gave me an hour 
which as you know I need. And I went before the Parliament of New Zealand and before a lot of other dignitaries who packed out this whole place. And uh, it was an incredible evening as I basically told them what happens when a nation loses its moral direction. What happens when a nation abandons the word of God? What happens when a nation turns its back on God? What happens to a nation that has a vanishing conscience, as I titled it in my book? And I just went right through what sin does to a nation. And I got all done with what sin does to a nation, and then I told them what Christ can do. I mean, what an opportunity. And when I was finished, uh, a wonderful response. And the man came up afterwards who uh, is the president of Telecom, which is the New Zealand communication system that runs all the phone systems, all the television, all the radio, all of everything. And came up and said, this message is too important just for us. We want to put it on New Zealand One television so everybody in the nation can hear this message. And we're just praising the Lord. You know, I was thinking about Scotland drifting away from the truth and maybe New Zealand kind of going toward it. What, a, what an interesting world we live in. So the Lord gave us a wonderful summer. And again, had the opportunity to focus on what is most important, and it's what I want to share with you briefly this morning, what is most important in our life as Christians, and that is how we respond to the Word of God. You have the opportunity this year to have a proper response to God's Word. If you want to make the most out of this year, that's what you'll need to do. If you want to waste this year, then just don't do that. What I would hope and pray would happen this year in your life, apart from all of the things that uh, are important in academics and in your own development towards whatever God wants you to be in the future, what I am most concerned about is how you respond to the Word of God. Because you have a very unusual opportunity to be here. The Word of God will be preached in chapel. It'll be taught in the classrooms. It'll be discussed in the dorms. It'll be presented to you on every possible front, in every possible venue and opportunity. And how you respond to the Word of God is either going to have a tremendous impact positively or negatively. <coughs> Excuse me. If you continue to resist the Word of God and failure to and fail to apply it, it'll harden you. If you continue to hear it and apply it with joyful obedience, it'll shape you into the image of Christ. The psalmist said this, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. The true believer loves God's Word, loves God's law. It is his deepest desire to know that law. In Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Let me not wander from thy commandments. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. Job said, that I desire your word more than my necessary food. You see, that's a distinguishing mark of a believer, to desire the word of God. Listen to what it says in Psalm 119, 155, by way of contrast. Salvation is far from the wicked. Why? 
for they seek not thy statutes. If there's anything true about unconverted people, it is that they don't have any interest in Scripture. If there's anything true about a Christian, it is that they do. The psalmist again in Psalm 119 says, I have chosen the way of truth. So many things in that psalm. My heart stands in awe of thy word, it says. I delight in thy law. Thy law is my delight. I seek thy precepts. Order my steps in thy word. Oh, let me never wander from thy commandments. And on and on and on. Psalm 119. The sum of it is in verse 112. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, even to the end. In other words, I'm devoted to your word. Oh, how I love thy law. What does it say in Psalm 1 about the godly man? It says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law they meditate day and night. Such are Christians. Such are the godly. I think it's safe to say that a person's attitude toward the Word of God is a test of their spiritual condition. A person's attitude toward the Word of God is a test of their genuine saving faith. You can tell a true Christian they love the Word of God. Let's think about that for a moment. Turn to James 1. And this morning, and then again next Wednesday, as I have two days to talk with you, I want to address some scripture from James 1 along this line of how we respond to the Word of God. That is the issue. The issue over there in Scotland was a continuing, escalating disinterest in the Word of God. Hopefully the issue in New Zealand is an increasing interest in the Word of God. What's, what about you? Where are you? in terms of the Word of God. I was speaking last week at Hume Lake uh, Camp, and uh, a guy commented on my message. I gave a message on the glory of Christ out of 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And I got into the great reality of the teaching of the Word of God about the sacrifice of Christ. And afterwards, one person said came to me through another person. Well, I like the story he told at the beginning, but I didn't like the rest of it. The story I told at the beginning uh, was incidental. The rest of it was the main course. And anyone who was disinterested in that reveals a heart that doesn't love the Word and probably a person who is not a Christian. In James 1, let's look at verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Boy, what a great statement that is. It's all about a proper reception of the Word. The key phrase in these verses I read is receive the Word. And that really is my plea with you as we begin our new year. Receive the Word. Jesus said, take heed to what you hear. 
He also said, Luke 8, 18, take heed how you hear. And Jesus pointed out that some people listened to him and some people did not. In fact, he gave a parable in Matthew 13 because he said he wanted to point out that some people seeing do not see and hearing do not hear and do not understand. They're described in the parables of that chapter. Now, how is it that we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are to receive the word? Let me just give you several quick points, all right? And I'd like you to build your plan for this year on these points. Number one, be willing to receive the word with submission. Be willing to receive the word with submission. Go back to verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let every one be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, at first sight, this text may not make a connection that I think it should make in your mind. He is saying here, you know the power of the word of truth. Verse 18 talks about the fact that he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, you were saved by the word, begotten again by the word of God. And so you know this, my beloved brethren. You know already the power of the word is what he's saying. Why? Because it gave you life. God brought you forth by the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word. The Word is the seed that gives new life. It is the Scripture which totally transforms the whole inner person, as Psalm 19.7 says. So you already know the power of the truth to regenerate you. You have become a Christian, so he says, this you know. My beloved brethren, you know the power of the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. In other words, we have been made God's creatures by the power of the word. It's able to make you wise unto salvation. So you know that. You've already experienced that. You have been born again. Now, he says, because you know the power of the word, follow along in verse 19 and see how this connects. Let everyone be quick to hear. To hear what? To hear what? The Word. That's the context. The Word of truth is mentioned in verse 18. Receiving the Word is mentioned in verse 21. And here in between, we have the attitudes that are essential in a proper response to the Word. It's a general command. You need to be a good listener. A good listener. And clearly, this refers to the Word of truth, the Word of God. Verse 18, the Word of truth. Verse 21, receive the Word. Verse 22, doers of the Word. Verse 23, not just a hearer of the Word. And down in verse 25, the Word is mentioned again. It is called there the perfect law, the law of liberty. The whole context here is about how people respond to the Word. And the first thing we're told is to be quick to hear. Be in a hurry to hear the Word of God. The idea is eagerness. 
Grasp every opportunity to learn the Word of God. Every time you have the opportunity to come to chapel, come with an eager heart. God transforms lives through the power of His Word. God conveys blessing through the power of His Word. God makes you useful through the power of His Word. God conforms you to Christ through the power of His Word. Grasp every single opportunity to hear the Word of God. Thank the Lord that you can go to a Bible study, that you can go to a Sunday school class, that you can go to church service on Sunday morning and Sunday night, that you can be engaged in some campus Bible study, some discussion, that you can go to your Bible class, meet with your professor, engage yourself in discussion of the Word of God with your roommates, grasp every opportunity to hear the Word of God, every lesson, every sermon, every tape, every exposition of Scripture, every book, that you can take advantage of. Be quick to hear. I love it when people are like that. I love to see that kind of appetite. Sometimes when I'm in the same place for a number of days, those people will become known to me because they're always on the front row, the second row. They're always listening. They're always questioning. It was a young man in Hume Lake. Every time I spoke, he sat on the front row with an open Bible and a notebook, a sharp guy. After every single time I spoke, he came to me and he said, but I need clarification on this because I don't quite understand it. And I was rejoicing in the fact that he was quick to hear. Charles Wesley cultivated this element in his own life. He wrote, when quiet in my room I sit... Thy book be my companion still, my joy thy sayings to repeat. Talk over the records of thy will and search the oracle divine till every heartfelt word is mine. Wow. Wow. Quick to hear. Every opportunity. Quick to hear God speak. Daily in the word as well. Second, slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. What does that mean? Well, you are eager to be the listener and reluctant to be the teacher, right? James 3.1, look at it. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. Don't be in a hurry to be the teacher. Be in a hurry to be the student. Why? Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Nobody can do that. Nobody can speak and not stumble in what he says. So don't jump into it. Cautiously, slowly, patiently, and reluctantly, you become the speaker. Once a young man came to the great philosopher Socrates, and he, he said he wanted to be instructed in oratory. And the moment the young man was introduced to Socrates, he began to talk in an incessant stream. This went on for some time. Socrates finally got in a word. He said, young man, I'll teach you but I'll have to charge you double. Double? Why? Well, I'll have to teach you two sciences. First, how to hold your tongue, and then how to use it. When the great John Knox 
was called to preach. And the power of God was on his life. His biographer says this. Here was his response to the first time he ever had to preach. He burst forth in most abundant tears, withdrew himself to his room. His face and behavior from that day until the day he was compelled to present himself in the public place of preaching did sufficiently declare the trouble and grief of his soul. Frightening. Frightening. There are always folks who want to talk but don't want to listen. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. If God so wills, your time will come. And then James adds another very interesting note with regard to how we respond to word to the word. Look at it. He says, slow to anger. Hmm. What do you mean by this? Well, the anger of man doesn't achieve the righteousness of God. What's he talking about? Well, the word here for anger is the word orge, which means a deep-seated resentment. It refers to a disposition. It refers to an attitude. Newborn babe long for the pure milk of the word. You, you can't even get into the Word effectively unless you're dealing with a sin in your life. Put it aside, he says back in James chapter 1, verse 21. Put aside all filthiness. Some people say, well, you know, I read my Bible, I don't get much out of it. I hear a chapel message, I don't get much out of it. I listen in class, I don't get much out of it. And the reality may be, that you have cut yourself off from the power of the Word of God because of iniquity in your life, and you have therefore cut yourself off from the goodness of God. I told our people at Grace Church yesterday morning, very simple principle. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. Sin is what you do when you believe that sin is more satisfying than God. You need to understand that. So the greatest inhibition against sin is to understand the greatness of your God. The way to understand the greatness of your God is to listen to the Word of God which reveals Him to you. But where there is sin in the way, there is no ability to receive the Word as you should. Before the Word can produce the righteousness of God, you have to deal with sin in your life. No time like the present. You're here. It's a new beginning. Young people, if there's anything in your life, deal with it. Let me tell you a little story, and I don't think my friend would mind if I told you. My, my good friend, buddy, is Steve Jones. And Steve just won the U.S. Open golf tournament. A few years ago, he came and gave his testimony in chapel. I called him the morning of the final round of the U.S. Open, and I said, what in the world's going on, man? I mean, you're playing lights-out golf on the toughest golf course in America. I played that course, and it is a monster. It's impossible for any normal human. Uh, I, I said, you're winning the U.S. Open. You've been off the tour for three years because of your injury. What is going on? He said, call me after tonight, and I'll tell you. He went out that final day, and... Uh, the pairings were perfect because Steve was paired with, with Tom Lehman, 
Tom is his best friend, and both love Christ. Both are strong Christians. Uh, so uh, they went out together. And Steve told me later that as they walked down the first fairway after they teed off, they put their arms around each other and prayed that God would be glorified. When they got to the 18th hole, Tom hit, they were tied. Tom hit his drive, beautiful drive. It bounced into a bunker. Steve hit a 300-yard drive right down the middle. And walking down the fairway, I said, what were you guys talking about? And he said, Tom was quoting to me, Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Tom was quoting me scripture. He said he got up to his ball, said I knew I could hit a seven iron to the pin. He hit it to the pin. Long story short, he won the U.S. Open, the most prestigious tournament in the world. I said, Steve, what happened? What happened? in your life. You, you played with such peace. You played with such commitment. He said, I'll tell you what happened. The week before, he said, I was in a tournament called the Tradition or something like that in Ohio, and I missed the cut. They play two days to make the cut to play Saturday and Sunday. I missed the cut. I didn't play well. But I didn't have a flight home until Monday, and so I hung around on Sunday and I went to a little church just a little church. And the pastor got up and he, and he preached a simple little sermon on dealing with the sin in your life. The, the things in your life that aren't right. And he said, I fell under such tremendous conviction. It wasn't some great iniquity in my life, he said, but there were little things in my life that I knew were not right with God. And he said, I had known this for months. And every day when I went out to play, I knew I was playing without the blessing of God, and that's a heavy burden to carry. I was on my own, he said. And I said, that's enough. And he said, I went back to my room, and I just poured out everything in my life, and I just unloaded everything, and I just dumped every sin, and I named it all, and I got it all out, and I put it all before God. And I just came out of there fresh, at peace. And I decided I'll, I'll go for the qualifying round. Won the qualifying round and won the Open. I played with a peace and a joy and a comfort in my heart because I knew everything was right with God. That's the only way to live your life. You're not always going to win the U.S. Open. I mean, that's, that's a rare deal. But you're going to have peace in your life, and the best of life is offered by the one who lives pure before God. So get rid of it. If you're going to listen to the Word with any kind of hearing that's going to make a difference, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Every instance of wickedness, every occurrence, it's the word kakia in the Greek, it means general evil of any kind. And then one last point. You receive the Word with an attitude of submission. You receive the word with purity, and finally, you receive the word with humility. In humility, verse 21, receive the word. This powerful word which is able to, to save your soul, and you know that, you've already experienced that, receive it with humility. It comes as commands, folks. Receive it meekly. The word actually means meekly, gently, willingly. Receive it with a teachable heart. This implanted word. Tremendous 
Receive it humbly. Let it convict you. Let it break you. Let it change you. This is God's desire for you. This is my desire for you as well. My prayer is that the Word will do its work in your heart this year and that your heart will be ready to receive it with submission, with purity, and with meekness so that you'll say, Yes, Lord, whatever the Word says, I humbly commit myself to obey. This can be the greatest year of your life, young people, but it's going to take this kind of attitude to make it that. That's my prayer for you, and it will be all along. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Let's stand. Father, what a precious treasure we have gathered in this place, in the lives of these students. Lord, how thankful we are that you have sent every one of them to us. How we know that each is a gift. And Lord, how we cherish them for your glory. But Lord, what they become this year will be a direct result of how they respond to your truth. And they're going to hear it. And they're going to read it. And they're going to discuss it. Oh God, may you give them submissive hearts, pure hearts, humble hearts, to respond to the word so that you can shape them into what you want them to be and they can know the fullness of your blessing. Lord, we just want you to be honored and glorified in every life. And we want to know the fullness of your goodness that we might give you praise. To that end, we pray for every person here. For the glory of Christ, amen. God bless you. See you Wednesday.